right, so I think we might as well, we might as well um, get up and running. We've got a few people watching, I think, tonight. Uh, Steve's there as well. Mm. Hi, Steve. Nice to, nice to see you-ish in my virtual kind of uh, environment. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll crack on. Um, tonight we are doing um, things around clinical governance. So it's um, one of those topics that people kind of uh, uh, don't necessarily shy away from, but also they don't necessarily feel that enthusiastic about probably um, a lot of the time. It's one of those slightly drier topics. Um, it's not the uh, exciting ultrasound images. It's not um, looking at lovely pictures and videos of pathology. Um, but it is a really, really important area. And it's something that we wanted to dedicate a whole session to because it's something that on the courses that we teach and that we run, uh, we find uh, people actually really engage with this topic very well uh, and actually find it very, very beneficial. It often prompts a lot of thought for people when they go back into their clinics, whether that's you know, in, in, in private practice, in the NHS, in the UK, uh, whether it's point of care, whether it's radiology, it gets people thinking about uh, what they do in their practice. Okay, so it's obviously a massive, massive topic. It's got lots and lots of uh, different areas to it, but we've tried to choose tonight uh, a few different areas. It's the usual crew, so myself, Stu, uh, Dave, uh, and Rob. Uh, and we're also delighted to have um, Doug back with us after huge public pressure um, to, to bring him back in tonight on a, uh, a performance on a performance fee tonight as well for you, Doug, <laughs> because of the the, 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 the crowd obeying for your uh, your presence on the on the webinar. So um, thanks again for thanks to Doug for coming back and uh, and sharing your expertise again. So um, to start off with. Um, one of the key things is around quality assurance, and we're going to look at some of the aspects of that. Um, you can break that down to three key things, really. Assuring competence, assuring service provision, but also assuring safety of equipment. Now, we're not going to go into training and competence particularly tonight, but we're going to look around things such as uh, safety of equipment, and then we're going to look around elements of, safe, of um, service provision, so things such as um, reporting uh, the challenges of image storage, uh, some of the aspects and the basic key aspects around infection control and how you should tackle those scenarios uh, in your practice with your system uh, and then touch on some of the, the the other elements around audit policies uh, and some of those other um, areas that are really really important I think particularly all of it's important for patient safety but particularly important for patient safety around um, policies and protocols and, and governance and those kind of things so to start off with we're gonna we're gonna chat about um, probes I think ultrasound probes uh, and what sort of damage can occur uh, to ultrasound probes. Uh, and then we're going to link in to, to, to Doug's going to do a little feature around how you can monitor your probes and, and everything else. Um, in terms of damaging probes, uh, touch wood, uh, hopefully I've never damaged a probe as far as I know. Um, yeah. Has anybody had a situation where they've, they've damaged a probe? <laughs> how would you know, Stu? Maybe well, I might, well put, yeah, I mean, might as well put, <laughs> the, put the bold <laughs> questions out first. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, when someone I mean, picks up a broken probe from the from the scanner, then you, you don't really know who did it, do you? Do you? Yeah, I mean, what, yeah, I mean, one of the, I think one of the key things about tonight is that a lot of the time, I think we can easily sort of get ourselves into to lull into the full sense of security, if you like, of assuming that the image we see on the screen is, is accurate and is what it should be. And in less experienced eyes, sometimes you won't pick up on changes in that image quality because of the health of the probe or the system or whatever. So 
Um, what I'm going to do to start with, just to sort of fire up the conversation a little bit and, uh, and tee Doug up to sort of take over a bit, is um, just share uh, some images around um, probes and the sorts of damage that can occur uh, to um, ultrasound probes and things. This is just really for uh, geek interest, really. So um, these are sort of the sort of things that can go um, can go wrong with uh, with ultrasound probes. We'll just share that screen so it looks a bit better. Uh, hopefully everybody can see that. Um, so these are the sorts of things you're looking for. So you can certainly be looking for cracks in cabling. So the cabling where it, where it sits adjacent to the actual probe itself. Uh, we'll chat in a little bit more in a minute and get Doug's uh, knowledge uh, going around um, the wires and the, and the ultrasound probes and, and cables themselves. Certainly cracks around probes. You know, if you drop a probe, those kind of things, these kinds of uh, issues certainly can occur. Um, and this is what, a, what an ultrasound probe theoretically looks like inside. And Doug, maybe if I, if I draw on you to sort of uh, comment about this at this point. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things, so, you know, the cable outside, it's smooth, it's white, it looks rather boring. Um, but inside, there's an awful lot. And so you've got to remember that the, the echo information in the pro uh, that, that's received by the transducer is is translated into very very small voltages and voltage changes that are happening in the megahertz range and um, electricity at, at very high frequency has some interesting characteristics it it it, it leaks it, it moves out of a cable it'll it'll uh, find a way into other cables nearby so each of those tiny wires that you saw in that, um, in that one cable is a coaxial design so that it keeps the electricity in it. Uh, and if it gets damaged, then that electricity will leak out. And one of the enemies of, um, of, uh, of, of those tiny voltages is what's known as EMC, which is electromagnetic interference. And um, that's interference and crosstalk from the cable, each cable itself to its neighboring cables, but it's also anything electromagnetic outside. And if you can go back to the slide that you showed after that, Stu. One with the, um, uh, uh, showing the broken apart cable. That's it, that yeah, one. Yeah. You can see on that that there's, there's, there's actually some, uh, Hopefully you guys can all hear me. I just had a, an unstable connection come up. Um, yeah, but there, there's, there's actually shielding surrounding that, ca that, that cabling as well. Now, when you run over a cable with your ultrasound scanner, which happens not infrequently, what you're doing is you are compressing all those little cables together. You're getting to move around and they're small. They're not that strong and they can get damaged. And that damage will build up progressively. And eventually you'll start to get what are known as, uh, you can sometimes see it, if you, uh, if you take the probe cable and you, you, you do that with it, or it, when you're scanning um, and, and the cable moves, you may see what are called, sometimes called shooting stars in the image, a kind of comet effect. And that is a clear sign that you've got a damaged cable. And the classic ways for those, as you say, are 
you know, running over the cable. You know, they're quite long, aren't they? Unless you have the little hook on the system where you just hook it up, keep it out of the way. So it's a classic uh, area where issues can happen like that. And, and, and how easy is it to, to replace probes, Doug? Is it like, no. is it just is it easy to change the plug on a lamp? <laughs> Far from it. Uh, each of the, the, the in the cable has to be uh, uh, connected to the transducer element in the array. And that, that's, um, it's not an automatic, uh, an automatic task. It, it's highly manual and uh, it, it's uh, very often an extremely skilled task to do that properly. That sounds expensive, Doug, why you're saying that. Oh, it is. And uh, high-frequency probes in particular have quite high rates of failure in manufacture. And that's one of the reasons why high-frequency probes tend to be more expensive than lower-frequency probes. And presumably the, pro so the, the, the probe itself, the actual probe head, uh, I don't know if you've got them there, you can just sort of pop on the screen, Doug, yeah. but the, pro the probe itself and the cable all come as a, as a unit, don't they? Yeah, single unit. You know, when, you, when you purchase that or whatever, and the end part as well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, ca the cable connector, you've got to remember that inside the connector on the, uh, that, that goes into the scanner, there's got to be, again, an equivalent number of connections, each of which must function perfectly to translate and, and transfer those voltages back into the machine so that it can start to process them. Um, sometimes uh, manufacturers will put a little bit of processing, a little bit of amplification uh, into the system before uh, the electricity leaves the probe. Because if you can do that, then that, that boost, that bit of amplification uh, helps to uh, reduce the amount of uh, the effect of crosstalk and poor connections. But yeah. poor connections are a really, really troublesome factor in ultrasound because mm -hmm. these voltages are absolutely tiny. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I've got a couple more uh, images. So, yeah, we talked about sort of cables. We talked about their, the sorts of things that can happen to your systems, and this is why it's so important to look after your, your kit and stuff. Um, this is a nice image um, that we often use on our, our cadaveric injection course and our injection programs. Just shows you... Um, you know, a needle uh, issue here, a sort of a puncture from a needle tip, um, yeah. from coming too close to probe. You know, the classic thing with these, with these kind of uh, issues is that, that somebody's looking at the screen and the needle is heading in that trajectory as opposed to that trajectory. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's a reasonably uh, common thing that can happen. And, uh, you know, you can see the corresponding ultrasound image here in the mm. bottom that shows you that uh, that dropout. Now, you know, that looks pretty obvious. Enough, yeah. Interestingly enough, that's not dropout. It's just... That's just the acoustic lens has been affected. So you're getting the, the appearance there because you're, you're not getting the, um, the echo reverberation inside between inside the acoustic lens at that point. That's me trying to chuck out some, uh, some technical lingo there without <laughs> fully understanding it probably. Okay, so, so uh, the dropout because th this actually happened on one of our probes. The crystals. One of your oh. courses. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, I dread to say that, but it, it is actually what happened. 
Um, and uh, when we tested the probe, there wasn't any dropout at that point. But the acoustic lens has been damaged. And actually, it was what you were also getting was uh, because the voltage goes onto the transducer, there was uh, a loss of um, uh, actually the, the electricity could leak out at that point. So mm -hmm. you can sometimes, you, I've had this in the past where a patient being scanned has said, oh, that tingles. <laughs> and that's a sign that the probe is no longer electrically safe yeah. Yeah. because the voltage is, is the voltage is this is this is actually in transmission the voltage is quite large in transmission and uh, that voltage is is leaking out from the probe mm. through the gel onto the patient's skin right. and this and this I mean this area here as well is obvious in that image there isn't it as well but when you're actually yeah. doing a live scan grayscale image that oh, can be, be, be less obvious to less experienced eyes and so this is why it's so important to check these uh, kind yeah. of things you also, you also can get obviously get where can't you of this face here um and other sorts of you know just yeah. again we'll go on to cleaning products later yeah. but that's probably a relevant point for cleaning products later around you can get abrasive effects and you can get yeah. chemical effects on the acoustic lens yeah and that's so why Sorry, in the, in this case, did you could you replace the lens then? No. So what do you do with it? On. You can't do anything with it. It's just the right um, Some people do repair um, lens, mm. you know, acoustic lenses, damaged acoustic lenses, etc. There are companies that do that. Um, how effective they are, I don't know. Um, how well, you know, they may be able to make the probe electrically safe, but has it returned the performance of that probe back to the manufacturer's specification? And mm. that, that is, that, that's the nub of this. Um, there, there are, you know, if you think about the, the break in the cable, the rip in the, the, the cable cover, you know, mm. again, if you run over the cable, what you may get is uh, a small tear in the cable outer covering. And uh, mm. now that again is no longer, you know, I, I would say that that, that damage um, is something that needs to be repaired. The manufacturer would most likely want to say, uh, well, hmm, we wouldn't repair it, but you might want to put some shrink wrap around it, for example, to repair it. Now that's a non-authorized repair. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, you had uh, an electrical, you know, someone got an electric shock off it or an electric shock or something like that, that might be inspected and then uh, tracked back. Um, so when a repairer has repaired the probe, um, they may have repaired the outside of it, but they also may not have seen what other damage is inside it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you do have to be careful of that, I think, uh, mm -hmm. and I would always suggest that uh, an authorised repairer or an authorised body was used to assess that probe properly. That's usually the original yeah. equipment manufacturer. And this is where this is where this just links in, doesn't it, to the whole concept of regular and routine sort of phantom device testing as well. You know, you, 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 yeah. you, you tend to see that pretty rigorously within 
um, radiology sort of settings in terms of uh, quality assurance and phantom testing on regular intervals. And uh, I think it's more difficult sometimes for people in point of care environments um, to, to, to get that sort of guidance and advice around that um, perhaps. But Doug, you, you're going to show just a, a little way potentially now, just that the way that people can just sort of check in a very, very simple way. It's not by any means totally exhaustive of what can be done around quality assurance and I'm going to change the camera, my camera, so bear with me a moment. Let's stop that share and just... Uh, um, you can still hear me, but uh, I'm just changing cameras on my, on my machine. So while you're, while you're doing that, Steve Wells is sending a question saying, are phantom devices expensive? I don't know if, Dave, if you've explored uh, phantoms and ways to test systems and things. Um, That's me. Yeah. Can you share the screen as well, Stu, while you're talking? Or... Yeah, yeah. Carry on, Dave. Uh, carry on, Doug. Yeah, do that while Dave's answering that question. Yeah, so um, my, my experience of um, phantoms has been that, um, that they are, um, yeah, they, they, they are certainly um, pretty expensive to, to buy if you're buying them in, um, you know, in private practice, obviously. Um, if you're going to sort of purchase a phantom so that you can do your own sort of um, your own testing, and obviously sometimes people want to happen to do practicing of sort of ultrasound guided procedures, but they're um, they certainly um, I think like a couple of hundred quid, something like that, which um, at least for a sort of half decent sort of phantom, yeah. um, we've had a go at making our own and. Uh, I think I had a shot at that recipe that you used recently, uh, Stu. I don't think mine was quite as successful as yours. Uh, mine came out looking like a jelly or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there are there are other options. You can build your own build your own phantom. Um, I've got to say, my one didn't last very long. It disintegrated after about two days. I think they can last longer than that. And there's yeah, various other. You can, you can buy them with, uh, you know, obviously a Phantom, it usually has sort of specific uh, items within it that are measured and regulate, that you can visualise them in certain ways, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at buying something like that, that, I mean, that really is expensive, isn't it? I mean, we've, we've had sort of pat testing, bought in pat testing where they brought along a Phantom and they've done sort of like various tests and whatever. Um, and obviously it costs that much more than a regular sort of pack test, but I think to actually buy as one of those sort of good quality phantoms where you've got all the sort of like testing, um, then I think you're talking sort of several hundred pounds at least, aren't you, for something of that nature. Would that be right, Doug? Yeah, in my experience, a good tester, uh, 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 you, you need two different types of phantom. Um, one of the phantoms that you need is what's known as a resolution phantom that tests the resolution of the system. But perhaps more important, you can actually see it on the image I've got frozen here, it is um, contrast resolution. In other words, the ability to pick up a difference in echo, uh, yeah. echo texture uh, between structures. So that is really, really important. What's known as contrast resolution is really, really important and it get, can get very, very subtle. Uh, and a, a, a contrast resolution test object is an expensive little beast, it really is, because it's got to be standardized. 
And what you're paying for is the standardization. It's not something that can be homemade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my experience, they cost at least a thousand pounds. Yeah. And they need regular servicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you want to to talk us through um, a quick little test that people can do in their clinics and things, Doug, or just to... One of the things that people always talk about with, with ultrasound, pro, you, you hear it, oh, I've dropped the probe, better check to see if there's any dropout. In other words, damage to the, to the face of the transducer, where the, the, the transducer material itself is a ceramic, and uh, it, you know, as a ceramic, it can, it can break, it can crack. And when it cracks, you may lose, it, it'll lose the ability to transmit ultrasound. Uh, and there's, uh, I, I've got a little um, paper clip here that I've just uh, straightened uh, to, to create a, a sort of thin wire. And what I can do is I can run the, serv- the, the wire across the face of the probe. Now I'm going to need to turn up the gain on the machine to, for you to see this uh, and make sure that it's got some gel on it. Uh, but if I, if I just... I don't know if you can see that very well. Let me just put it in the right place. As I run this across, can you see that line of contact move across? Now, yeah. if there was a dropout, a broken transducer crystal, what would happen is a consistent point that would completely disappear and then it would come back. Now, I'm being quite gentle here and I'm running it along. Um, a fairly dry surface. I need some more gel really across that surface to make sure that it's damp and provides good contact. There we go, that's better. You can see as I move it, now it would completely disappear at a point if there was any problem. You can see, if I just freeze the image and then scroll back. Can you see right Right at the top, um, just up here, it's very small indeed, and that's the point of contact. The bit below it, this bit, is actually showing the ap- uh, how in reception you use a wider aperture. And you'll notice that I have completely turned off the compounding to do this. Because if I had the compounding on, then you would see the different lines of sight with the compounding too. And it would be even wider, it would look like that. Oh, it's a little man. <laughs> Great, Doug, that was brilliant. Is that useful? So yeah, that's I, what I, I, just with a, with a, with a, a flat, some people use a, you know, you can use a, 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 any sort of blade edge or anything like that to run across the surface but you've got to be careful and got to be gentle about it make sure that you have some uh, also that it's moist contacting because obviously if it's dry contact you're not going to get anything uh, but it's a useful thing to do bear in mind that what that's doing is it's testing the whole system so you could have i'm just going to press the freeze button and just the pro you could have a core connection at this end in all those, you know, a little bit of muck inside there gets in the way of one of the connections and it'll cause exactly the same effect. 
So the first thing to do if you think that you've got dropout is reconnect the probe and give it a, give give the connection a, a, a bit of a blowout uh, to to try and shift any dust or dirt that might have got into it. Now that's more often a risk if you are constantly reconnecting and disconnecting probes. And if you've got a portable system, you're more likely to be doing that. And that's why and that's why. Um... It's so important to, to look after your probes that aren't in use, isn't it? As, as, as you oh, kind yeah. of mentioned there, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a hockey stick and a linear probe, like we you know we talked about the different uses of those in the previous webinars, but um, it's why it's so important to put them back in the box, keep them stored safely, don't just leave them on the shelf gathering dust. Absolutely. It's not, it's not, just, it's not just a robust um, sort of power socket, is it? It's, it's, it's um, you know, sensitive bits of kit. That the, the, these probe connectors are, are quite sophisticated in their own right. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they, they perform an important task. So do look after them. Brilliant. So if, I, if, I take you back, if I take you back off screen sharing, Doug, or can you do that? I've done that. Wonderful. And I'll reconnect my other camera so that okay. you can see my pretty face again. Not Fab. I think we might have lost Rob somewhere. Yeah, he's... <laughs> so what's, what's different there? <laughs> um, brilliant. So, yes, yeah, so guys, that's just a sort of an overview or discussion, really, we wanted to have around um, machines. We talked mainly about probes there, but obviously your system as well is important, the cleanliness of the system. And when you're purchasing systems, do think about, um, you know, the cleanliness of how you maintain your system and everything else and, uh, the nature of what you're going to do with it and the types of systems that you need in terms of the range of um, different uh, optimization tools you have, um, all of these different aspects. Dave, are you poised to sort of come in there with some comment? No, I was going to say something. Um, I was going to say something detrimental about Rob and the way he looks after his machine, but don't worry. All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, that's, that, that kind of, I guess, sort of brings that sort of more physical checks part of the, of the discussion tonight to a close. Um, before we go any further, I want to sort of um, just share a couple of documents in the, in the UK here that um, I often refer people to when they're thinking about the governance issues or broader issues to consider when integrating ultrasound into their practice. Um, and and my, my go-to around these two things are, are one document by the Royal College of Radiologists, so the RCR, which are the standards around the an ultrasound service provision. Um, as soon as you say that, it tends to get people who don't work in radiology or traditional imaging uh, setting uh, sort of saying to you, uh, oh, yeah, but I, I, I don't run a, a, a focused ultrasound service. I, 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 I run a, a physio clinic. I run a, a sports and exercise medicine clinic. I don't, I don't just focus just on ultrasound. Um, but this document is actually, uh, we were just saying before we came on tonight, the foreword of this document is actually uh, a really good read around the landscape of ultrasound uh, how it's utilised in so many different domains now, both in, again, in the UK. So sorry to those who are overseas, but sort of a primary care and a secondary care. In other words, a community-based environment and a, a hospital-based environment. Um, so I'm going to share the link on the on the chat, and I'll put it. I'll I'll, I'll put a full link onto the, uh, the the page and stuff as well in, in due course. But this is the uh, this is the link now that I'll put on uh, for the actual RCR document. Hopefully that works. Um, you can just Google RCR standards for ultrasound practice. Uh, let me just do one other link because I don't think that's worked. 
Uh, and within this, uh, you know, there's probably one of the first things to kind of um, talk about is probably around uh, reporting. Um, and it's often a, an area of um, discussion when you're looking at uh, radiology compared to say point of care environments, which is at the moment our topic for discussion next week. Um, but um, for me, it, it, it doesn't really make a huge difference. I think in terms of radiology environments, often you're using reporting software. And so it, it tends to be kind of, it's, it's a core part of what you do. Uh, in a point of care environment, uh, from, from my experience, you, know, you should be reporting on your images now. It may be that that takes a slightly different format in terms of incorporating that into your letter writing or whatever. But if you look at uh, all of the uh, core kind of competencies around and the, and the training programs around ultrasound in the UK, and if you look at, say, uh, case guidance around uh, course content and everything else, there's a significant focus around reporting because it's of medical legal importance and it's, a, it's part of your medical legal uh, responsibility and record of your patient care um, and so um, reporting is an interesting topic in its own right because um, it's quite a um, it's quite an art I think in terms of the terminology to use how you uh, how you describe an image uh, and how you then link that to actually the ongoing care for the patient and the ongoing the ongoing management as well Dave I'm not sure if you wanted to add anything around reporting and the nuances of it yeah, I mean, there's, um, I think Rob's trying to get back in, actually, Stu. All right. Um, frantic, frantic messages coming up. We could leave him out for another 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, as we know, there are sort of various guidelines, aren't there, in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, what a report sort of, you know, should um, include. But there are lots of different styles. Some people sort of... Um, you know, report in order of sort of like importance, if you like, in terms of what they've seen. So they'll put the most sort of significant finding first. Other people tend to report in a very sort of like, you know, sort of systematic sort of way. Um, I think obviously the, the, the key thing is, is to, you know, is to say it as you see it. So, you know, obviously trying to be objective, that was certainly the way that I've always been taught my understanding of the, of the guidelines principles is, you know, to, to be objective, um, to only yeah. report, I think as well on the um, area that you've been sort of asked to report on, you know, don't sort of, you know, do uh, sort of like, a, or, or certainly make sort of huge generalization statements that you can't support. And I guess it's the key thing is obviously making sure that it actually correlates, it answers the clinical question it correlates with the images that you're storing and that there is a sort of sensible, logical format to it, whichever is your sort of preference, really. I think it's just, you know, finding a sort of standard way that works for you, such that you don't omit to say anything um, of any significance, but equally at the same time, you know, refrain from sort of like sweeping generalizations or saying anything that you cannot objectively back up with your images, I guess yeah. is the way that I would recommend people to go on it. I don't know I if guess, you've got anything else to add to that. I guess, I guess, I guess one thing is around, um, just occurred to me is around the differences between if you're, if you're performing the ultrasound and you're uh, reporting it, 
if you're if they're writing that back to somebody who's referred to you i think it's important to address the question that they ask you um if obviously you're seeing a patient as part of their care pathway you're assessing them treating them ultrasound's part of that then you you, you'll have the questions maybe in your head of where you're going to do your focus evaluation but uh, i think if you're certainly if you're receiving a request to do an image investigation in a radiology or imaging sort of sensor then uh, ask that question is important. The other thing I would just say is around ambiguity of statements. Yeah. So um, I think, uh, you know, certainly av- avoiding um, lots and lots of ultrasound jargon, and there's certainly plenty of that out there that can be utilized. You know, try and break it down into something that makes clinical sense. So either the person's referring to you or the person who's just going to read your assessment report uh, so that it actually makes sense rather than just a whole bulk load of, of, of measurements and, and words around something that, you know, hypoechoic, hyperechoic, people won't necessarily understand the mm. implications of that and what it means. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I think, yes, yeah, yeah. and, and don't say things that are, you know, we, I, I, I certainly from a sort of physio perspective and working with other physios who scan, you know, you tend to see a lot of um, sort of physio jargon creeping in. So people <clears throat> people talk about, um, fro- you know, um, frozen shoulder, um, sort of throwing in almost like oftentimes a diagnosis, but without um, sort of linking it to any sort of particular um, evidence, if you like, from what they've seen. Or um, So um, again, I, I think it's just being get back to what we were saying before about being really objective um, but just you know with a with a with a reporting on an ultrasound sort of hat on it's saying what you see and then in the rest of your clinic letter you might talk about the diagnosis that you deduce from that but um, I think you've got to just try to be really objective in in the actual sort of like scanning report I've, yeah, yeah. I think it should be the, the format is exactly the same as the format that you use in a in a in a acute setting in a biology clinic, really. But then maybe at the end of it, some recommendations. So, for example, if you do an ultrasound report uh, in an acute setting, it is all descriptive, isn't it? There is no real. There shouldn't really be any, like you know. Um, like this, this might be a frozen shot or whatever in the body of your text. At the end of it, you might sort of, in your conclusion, you might say this, you know, findings are, particularly if you're a physio doing it, so you kind of perform a dual role, then you would be able to do that. And, 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 and that's fine. But I think, and then also sometimes a bit of advice is actually not bad, but that all has to hinge on the, the factual information. The factual information has to be absolutely like, based on that based on what you've seen and not what you infer or what you think you might have seen or what it might represent and i think that's what some some people particularly clinicians i think they're guilty of that probably mm. uh, a lot of the time and i suppose the other we thing do all the time just around sort of gloss glossary of terminology so i guess the, the real sort of absolute classic is the bursitis isn't it i mean we see it on mm so many yeah. reports of bursitis um, but yet as we know there's you know real sort of lack of definition around what a bursitis mm. actually is and the significance of um, you know different if you like um, the, the, the width or whatever of a, dimensions of a of a bursa and when does that constitute a bursitis mm. 
And so I guess as much as anything else, it's knowing your audience. Um, and are you going to be sending them images or are they just going to be getting a report landing on? We see so many people who go for ultrasound scan evaluation of their shoulder. The report says bursitis. And so everyone then concludes from that that the treatment is an injection. Yeah, I was, gonna, yeah, I was, about, I was about to say, like, it, it, that, that you, it's a really good point, Dave, because the terminology you use in a report, your description of ultrasound image, that leads to, it can lead to a much more interventional focused yeah. treatment. The, the other one is the bursitis. The other one is a synovitis or a, a synovial kind of thickening. Those kind of, they can also trigger sometimes people to think about injections, steroid injections, you know, those kind of things. So again, yeah, you're that. Yeah, really good point, Dave. You know, think about yeah. how, what the implications of how you're describing something with your terminology. Uh, and I think we, yeah, we cover it on another webinar. But there's that whole thing around sort of normal, you know, age-related sort of changes and normal variants and this kind of thing. And I think there's an article, isn't there? Like, the, the name escapes me. It's my favourite one as well. But <laughs> it's like 94% of shoulder scans had like were reported as having like bursitis or a craniocapicular joint osteoarthritis but the, the real Jewish one <laughs> uh, but the real elephant in the room with it is the fact that there's no definition around sort of like the actual extent of those changes so that really what they're saying is 94 percent of ultrasounds of people over the age of 45 show age-related changes, which suddenly becomes a less dramatic title to that article, doesn't it? I think, I think you're referring to Girish in 2011, where they stated <laughs> that 78% show subacromial, subdeltoid, <laughs> bursal <laughs> thickening. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just drop that one onto the Facebook feed for you. Don't worry. That work of art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a, I think it's a really, really good point around, you know, you talk about you know, we talked about the hard governance of it, that, you know, we should be reporting, we should be documenting. This is part of the medical legal responsibility of using this, this, these devices in our practice. But the actual art and the detail and the considerations when you're reporting an image and the implications of that is, is also a really, really interesting thing. And that then leads us on to, I think, if you think about the, 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 the core kind of premise of if you're going to report something, it should be kept along with the image that it refers to and those two should never be separated out. Um, there's a real issue, I think, at the moment that I don't have an answer to, um, and there is no absolute on it around image storage, um, the sort of topic that, that, that keeps, keeps me awake at night. Um, and, um, you know, when you work in radiology settings, it's all automated. You know, you, you, you're storing images, you're reporting images, you've got pack systems or whatever. Uh, it's all automated. Uh, you're labeling the image, and that's another discussion to have in terms of quality of what you're doing with your images and storage and how you do it. Um, but point of care environments is, is another, is another whole another discussion and um, often get, you know, discussions of, should we be storing images? Should we not be storing images? I think the mm -hmm. ideal is you, if you, if you can store an image and you have a way of storing an image, then absolutely uh, to go alongside your report and, and you make sure that you, uh, you store that all appropriately and everything else in line with GDPR and patient sensitive data and everything else. But um, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware that it's not as, as easy as that in point of care environments. I'm not sure you guys think about that and thoughts. Yeah, uh, certainly um, it's more challenging. I think one of the issues, and we, we, I know we've sort of talked about this before, you know, sort of like back in the day with NHS when we weren't a 
attached to packs and you know images were being stored on machines and then you know <clears> other sort of storage devices as it were and then the sort of whole question comes up as if the if the image isn't inextricably linked with the with the patient episode then obviously you know then immediately then you've got this opportunity or risk or whatever you want of the images then become you know uh, uh, potentially put with the wrong patient episode or it could be mixed up with the you know so it, as soon as you lose that immediate sort of banking of the of the image um, that you have in radiology then the whole sort of uh, issue becomes a lot more a lot more complex and a lot more tricky I mean we have a in private practice, I use, uh, we, we have a diary system, which is DR, uh, GDPR compliant for saving images and videos. And so we can upload onto there, but it still doesn't get you away from the fact that, um, you know, you could put the wrong images or you could store the images against the wrong client's information or whatever, you know? So you, you, you lose that robust sort of, if you like, journey of matching sort of image to client. So but how would that happen then, Dave? Because if you kind of annotate and you put a patient details in, yeah. when you scan and then you yeah. export it, then the num the name and the details are on on, on the image, aren't they? Yeah, but you've you've still got um you've still got um you know the, the thing of like human error or whatever because there's yeah. nothing to stop okay. you. Yeah, yeah annotating the wrong person's details on it. There's nothing yeah. to, okay, there's nothing enough, to yeah. automatically make you move on to the next sort of episode on your machine or whatever. So it, it's because it's, it's not automated. It doesn't sort of flow through. So we have yeah. to, you know, take the images off the machine and then yeah, load yeah, them up yeah. onto yeah. the correct episode of the, um, mm. on our diary system. So there's, there's lots of process and sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah, power. yeah opportunities it's um, a real um it's a real it's a real challenge i think when you're outside of that radiology setting as to how you manage that and that's mm. certainly something that people need to consider when starting to utilize old standing clinical practice you know how are you going to be doing that um how are you going to be trying to achieve those kinds of things in terms of image storage and i think probably you know that, that you know if you're thinking as well about doing interventional uh, procedures and things then um, having a position of your, your needle with uh, joint injections and things is also um, uh, a, a really good thing to aim for in terms of uh, your governance around these, these aspects. Um, but we, I think we've, it's, it's something that has to be mentioned, but it's a, it's a real challenge. Uh, mm. Steve's just said here, um, he uses a reference number from the patient management system and the image's date is stamped. Yeah, so he sort of brings those two together, I think. But um, I think the key thing is that people... Um, actually consider it I, that, that's you know, part of the reason for us or having this sort of session tonight on an arguably a slightly drier topic um is is so that we flag up things in people's minds and think okay yeah i need to think about that how could i do that and there's certainly a number of cloud uh, options as well now that are out there and a lot of the systems mm -hmm. doug maybe you want to come in here about uh, system connectivity to packs and to um wireless connections it's becoming much more common isn't it um, or not? <laughs> you've got to be. You've got to be quite careful. It varies across the world as well. Um, you've got various different considerations that come into this. Uh, I'm going to ask a, 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 what sounds like a, a, 
to me, quite a simple question. Um, how long should you keep an image for? Um, should I, well, if you're talking about um, like physiotherapy notes for an adult um, have to be kept for eight years, that's the recommendation. So I don't know if radiology is any different. If it's a, if it's a, if it's for a minor, I think it has to be. Is it 21 years for someone who, for a minor, and for an adult, it has to be kept for eight years. Great question, Doug. But that's yeah, the reason, the reason we, we invited you along. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's another question that leads out of that, which is um, your notes. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, ultrasound being used in many, many of these environments as, a, as an adjunct to your practice. So, does it, if it's being used as a tool um, in your examination of the patient, do you actually need to keep an image record? You've used the tool, do you need to keep mm -hmm. an image record? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think if you look, yeah, I mean, there's 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 various sort of uh, arguments around it, aren't there, in terms of how it's been used. But I think if you look at this from the from the core concept of that you're using ultrasound imaging, you're performing a, a a diagnostic ultrasound scan, if you like, or a scan, if you like, in 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 your clinic, then uh, I, I I think you should be um, reporting on that or dealing with that as a, as a, as an ultrasound scan or image. I think we should be setting our standards high in terms of point of care, uh, role here. I think we should be setting our standards high as, as, as we can in terms of trying to meet, um, you know, the standards that are expected from radiology colleagues. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we should be sort of saying, okay, I can do an ultrasound and I'm not going to sort of mention it. I'm just going to, do as, as, as a tool as part of what I'm doing. I, I just think the device needs the respect. I think it you know, requires the respect of if you're doing something, do it well, do it properly and, 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 and comment on it. Even, even if that means, you know, I evaluated a region with ultrasound today in clinic and, and uh, it was normal. You know, it, 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 you know it, can, it can be as simple as that as part of the, the clinical letter, as part of the assessment as you would do for a physical examination test or whatever. But I just think, um, you know, yeah, yeah. I, think the, I think one of the things that we talk about on the course, and I think that's this is probably sort of relevant here as well, isn't it? And that's that um, sort of, you know, the duty of care side of things. And um, uh, as a yeah. clinician, anything that you um, do within your sort of practice has to be done to the standard that you, so you can't just say, well, but really I'm a physiotherapist. I just use ultrasounds as a bit of a sort of like, you know, bit of a added sort of toy to what I do or whatever. You know, that if you are, if you are stating that the ultrasonography is part of your clinical practice, it has to be performed to the same level and the same standard as everything else that you do. Yeah, um, that's the, the, yeah. the fines. Um, so I'm talking here particularly the, the, I guess the, the, the relevant benchmark here is advanced practice physiotherapy, for example. So everything that you do, which is an extension of your practice, has to be done to the same standard. You have the same duty of care um, as your sort of, if you like, your core areas of practice. So you yeah. can't say, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm not very good at that bit of it or something like that. You have to 
Um, you have to be able to uh, deliver the same standard of care. And I think, you know, this, that probably comes into it. If you are going to use an ultrasound on a patient, um, notwithstanding if you said, oh, I'm just training at the moment. So, you know, I'm not, this isn't a sort of formal scan. But if you are, um, if you are suggesting that you are performing an ultrasound as part of somebody's um, assessment, then I believe and I, and I, under, my understanding of the rules and regulations are such that, you know, you have the, exactly the same duty of care and exactly the same duty binding you to the standards around that aspect of your assessment and treatment. And therefore, 100%, you need to, you know, talk about the results of your scan. Yeah. Purely, I guess, from a, from a documentation perspective, because if you saw a patient a year ago, and you don't write down the fact that you do a scan, and then the patient says, well, you did a scan of me. And you're like, did I? I don't remember that. Uh, that, to me, <laughs> would be well, a fairly ridiculous situation to find yourself in. So you need to be documenting everything that you do. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you should be consenting them for performing a scan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And advising them about the risks around the scan. So I don't see that there's any way that you can not mention it and not put a report in there. Yeah. And then yeah. a couple, a couple of uh, really interesting and very, very relevant point, which kind of skips me. I'm just realised the time as well. Where's this? Where's this hour of clinical governance gone? It's been. This goes, doesn't it? It's, got, it's, it's the quickest session for me. I love clinical. I love all these things. Um, but it's got it's um, a really, really important point by Angela um, that having the images allows you to do the audit process as well, which is a key pillar of governance. Um, you know, your ability to audit back your, your, your images, you know, marry those up in terms of, okay, was I right with that call? Did it lead to the right investigation? Did it lead to the right treatment? Really good point, Angela. Thank mm -hmm. you for um, giving me a nudge on that. Very yeah. grateful. Yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't get asked in, in private practice, well, in all practice, but, you know, they'll say, oh, can you send me those images or can you send me the report or would you mind mm -hmm. sending those images to, you know, this other, you know, so... Yeah. Um, and certainly, yeah, so I, I think you, um, you know, I think it's good practice that you, um, you know, certainly store images where there's anything relevant to, to discuss or if it has any impact on that patient's treatment or management, then I'd say that, that you would really have to be storing something there or yeah. certainly writing a very detailed report that, um, you know, that could be yeah. referred back to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that probably covers sort of the debate around image storage, which is never a, uh, an easy one. I don't think particularly for point of care people to sort of get a grasp, you know, make an easy thing just to transition overnight. It takes some consideration, but hopefully we, we've planted a, uh, a flag in the ground there to sort of make you think about that tomorrow morning when you wake up and have your, uh, your Weetabix. Uh, um, Stu, Stu, can I just say, I, um, I just looked in that document, the, um, the RCR document, um, which is to the ultrasound uh, mm. requirements. And it's, it basically says for image storage uh, that the RCR says that it should be stored for an appropriate amount of time. And it has a reference in there. So I imagine it means that it is different for different uh, um, areas and in, you know, particular body parts, for whatever, yeah. different types of scans, etc. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, probably just worth, um, obviously there's loads of other issues we can talk around governance and things, but I think one other thing is around uh, infection control is, is really important and it's something that, again, we 
we often find on courses and, and, and teaching programs that leaves sort of people sort of sort of relatively speechless in terms of how should I clean my machine? How do I approach this? I think we get so focused around, um, you know, utilizing the ultrasound, get an image, how do I move the probe, everything else like this. But uh, an infection control is an absolutely vital element of, of keeping your machine clean and keeping your patients safe, uh, particularly if you're going to go on doing anything more invasive. So um, I, I, one of the key things I've always sort of said about this and I'll sort of launch my sort of uh, views first is, is around um, people assuming that they can use any cleaner on, a, on a, an ultrasound probe. Um, you know, anybody, people sort of think, okay, yeah, well, alcohol, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't carry that sort of conversation on Rob any further in, uh, in current climates. But the, um, yeah, the, the obvious one is people think about alcohol, yeah, al alcohol, chuck some alcohol on, on, on most medical devices and, and it cleans things down and everything else. And I always say to people, and we've, we've created a protocol where I work now that's, uh, that's certainly been pretty rigorously put together in terms of the infection control team's engagement with it. Um, but you know, if you work in a, in a large um, NHS trusses, engage your infection control team very early on, speak to them about what their expectations are, but also understand what you can use on your machine. Otherwise, it can damage it. Is that right, Doug? Yeah, the raw materials can certainly damage it. Yeah. You've got to bear in mind that, um, you know, the, the um, ideal uh, 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 agent to use is something that is pretty harmful and uh, it, it's often quite reactive so uh, it, it, it can affect some, some of these materials affect metals some of them affect plastics uh, some of them will dissolve things alcohol is a very very good solvent so if you um, it, it will leach out uh, from plastics, particularly bendy plastics, it will leach out uh, uh, materials from that. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you've got to be really quite careful. Mm -hmm. And now, um, the materials used by manufacturers will vary. And manufacturers, there's, there's, behind the scenes, there's quite a lot of work that goes on to, to try and find out what cleaning materials are being used across the world because they vary a lot and you know which are recommended you know in, well, some in, in, ter in terms of brands and everything else i guess I mean, we've got we've got people here from brands but also the chemicals too you know in some countries okay. formaldehyde is used for, for um uh, high level disinfection of, of equipment um guys uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're outside the uk guys just share with us your cleaning products let's go for it <laughs> yeah. hey, Doug, there's Deuteralmehyde is very common outside the UK. Formaldehyde. Really? Most manufacturers recommend its use because it's pretty safe for yeah. equipment. doesn't harm it. But, but Doug, don't you think that, that sorry, um, that um, there's a massive sort of tension between um, infection control and uh, medical physics departments because if you ask the medical physics department what should you use, uh, sometimes they just say, oh, uh, soapy water or something like that. And then if you go infection control, it's like, well, they want some sort of fairly robust sort of um, infection control measures that are not necessarily like the manufacturers are not necessarily 
thinking that okay. all of them are yeah. safe for their probes. <laughs> Think about the drivers for the people you're talking to. You know what 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 what, hmm. what the driving motivations are for the people who you're talking to. There, medical physics. They're they're thinking primarily about the care of the equipment, and they're thinking about risk in terms of damage to the equipment. Mm -hmm. Infection control. The drivers there are all about cross-infection risk. So they are going to want to minimize as far as possible uh, cross-infection risk. And they'll want, if, if they believe there's any risk of cross-infection, they're going to want to have um, something, you know, the, the item ideally put through an autoclave, mm. which you can't do to an officer machine. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there are your compromises. Now, now actually, Dis, you know, cleaning disinfection. We call it CDS because it's cleaning disinfection and sterilisation. If you if you go down to a central, um, you know, to a, a central sterilisation department, uh, every dirty instrument is put through a process that includes cleaning, disinfection, and sterilisation. You follow a three-step process. Now, with ultrasound equipment, it's pretty difficult to sterilise it. I guess we, you know, it's worth also saying at this point we're talking. MSK here, so we're talking um, surface linear probes predominantly here as well. We're not talking more basic probes. Considerations there about um, you know what is the risk of cross infection? Well, if you're going to apply the probe to broken skin, then think about it. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing is is, is you may require different cleaning for the system in comparison to the probe face as well. You know, there's there's considerations Absolutely. around considerations around that as well, and uh, again, it's just about us sort of trying to sort of say to people, you know, who are, who are looking to get into this, maybe um, in standalone clinics or whatever, you know, consider these 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 aspects and get these things in in place. Yeah. I mean, it's been very interesting with the with the recent um, uh, lockdown, COVID nineteen, etc., and the use of ultrasound in 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 uh, risk areas. Uh, big complex ultrasound scanners are not the easiest things to wipe down. Uh, they're not really intended for that. Uh, point of care designed machines, uh, scanners that are designed to be used in a point of care environment are often designed to be much more easily yeah. uh, wiped down and decontaminated after use because then they're designed for use in an environment where um, body fluids, etc., are likely to be flying around. That's, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Uh, and so, you know, you can, you can look on that and something like the little machine that I showed earlier, um, that's designed for a point of care use uh, environment. And, and, and actually that's quite important. If you're thinking about injections and that sort of thing as well, uh, it's quite important there. You want to have a machine that's simple, that's easy to wipe down. Yeah. So, so, and, so, and probably have more buttons on it. We've had a question saying, um, could we recommend products for the probes and things? And I'm just going to say, to, to, you know, guys, you no, know, contact your your system uh, manufacturer and engage with them about what they recommend in terms of cleaning uh, products. Um, it's it, it's actually impossible to recommend. Just the manufacturer. Also engaging. Yeah. Sorry, so Doug, I missed that bit. It's also engaging with, as you said, with with what the what the the country the recommendations. Yes are within the country what the infection control yeah. people what the what the supervisory bodies say you know in this country in the UK uh, the the move is towards um, wiping down um, probes with um, 
you know, ideally you want to use something that decontaminates it uh, and disinfects it. Uh, and then you've got the Tristel Duo, which is a chlorine dioxide based uh, uh, material. Yeah. It, it's, it's a bit more expensive than Clinel wipes, but that's, that's it actually does the job. It's exactly. designed to, disinfe to, to yeah. disinfect probes. It is very expensive. Um, but we use it again because we are doing lots of injections and, and, and so yeah. forth. But it's um, sort of £100 a, a bottle of foam, uh, which doesn't, you know... Not like... as expensive as your uh, your latest eau de toilette though, Dave, is it? <laughs> I, feel, I dab a little bit behind my ears after every clinic. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's more expensive I, I use it. Nice <laughs> 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 But higher level disinfection, the recommendations are that you use uh, a, um, a, a disinfectant uh, or, or a, another process entirely, um, either ultraviolet light based or um, a, 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 a gas pla a plasma based. Um, and those mean that you have to go and put the probe in a machine for a period of time. And those machines cost many thousands of pounds. Yeah. Mm. So I think, yeah, so I guess the key thing messages are think about how you clean these machines, engage with, as Doug said, you know, relevant professional bodies, the country that you're working in, your manufacturer of your system uh, and explore it, but certainly something to, to consider. I'm just conscious of time, so we're probably um, about to sort of draw, draw it to a close, I think. I think one other thing I just wanted to mention was around um, policies and management of things. Um, again, I think I'm probably thinking here more around a point of care um, environment probably, but um, thinking about how you're going to handle uh, findings from your ultrasound investigation, certainly uh, unexpected things can come up with any of these kind of imaging investigations and having uh, written policies and established pathways or plans of action of how you're going to communicate either with uh, a GP or whoever or uh, having a pathway to a radiologist uh, and their expertise um, for further imaging or other imaging modalities is, is really important. So I think I just wanted to sort of just mention that as well in the session tonight about just thinking broadly about other scenarios that can occur and how you would anticipate those and how you would handle those situations and also checking them on a regular basis. Don't just write something up and then park it. Check it every six months, make sure that's still going to actually work if you, that situation was to occur. I don't know yeah. if you guys want to add anything more to that. Uh, it, I, I think in private practice, it is... Uh, probably one of the most sort of important things really um, that it's it can be so sort of complex you know particularly working in central London so many of the people that we see you know come from you know outside of London um, so they don't have a, a, a GP locally and so and some of them are coming for insurance so, you know, in, in some ways, those might be easier to manage because <clears throat> then via their insurance, then you can get them reviewed with a consultant quite promptly. Uh, but if they're self-funding and they come and see you, there's not always a, a sort of natural, obvious, easy pathway um, back into services, particularly if you, you know, you really feel that they need to be seen um, quite promptly. So, yeah, you... you, you uh, I know it's, there's not a one-size-fits-all oftentimes pathway for these people so you have to really sort of you know um, 
engage, you know, have dialogue with the person, discuss your sort of um, concerns, and you know, and, and sometimes it's just a, a, a process of working out with that particular person what is going to be the most efficient way to get them seen and reviewed whether it be getting them back into their GP or getting them reviewed urgently in secondary care. So um, it's, a, it's a, a, a real, it can be a real issue at times, particularly if it's sort of, um, you know, dare I say, sometimes if it's just sort of low index of suspicion, but there's just something on the scan that you're not quite happy about and you just want to get them reviewed, um, you know, then it, those can actually be some of the more tricky cases if you like, because then you've, you know, you're um, then having to put them sometimes for a lot of, I say inconvenience sounds like the wrong word, but you, you, you know, you might be sending them off to go and see somebody and then go and get reviewed somewhere else. And it's all comes down to the fact that, you know, you can't in the setting that I work in, just send them around next door to go and get an MRI scan, for example. Yeah. So yeah. It's, on a, it's on a case by case basis. And, um, and uh, yeah, they can be some of the more tricky scenarios, I must yeah. say, in, when you're working in, in that setting. Yeah, so, so, so certainly some sort of uh, anticipation or some thought into those situations of, of what those scenarios could be like before they actually occur is, 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 is definitely recommended from, from us. I think yeah. probably we'll, we'll probably draw it to a draw it to a close there um unless you guys have anything else particularly to, to add in um mm -hmm. hopefully that's been a useful session guys it's been i guess really just an overview of some of the smaller aspects of um some of the governance considerations really around msk ultrasound and, and using it in your practice um many thanks to doug uh again for joining us uh conscious you've been sort of watching from the sidelines very patiently for, for us <laughs> 25 minutes um so thank you very much for joining us again uh, and sharing your expertise with us um we may well be calling on you in, in in future weeks as well um and next week we're focusing on um i think probably it's more around uh we get a, we get a few questions basically around um you know are oh, working uh, in this kind of environment what's it like to work in a radiology setting and perform these investigations what's it like to you know to to, to what the challenges you might face in those different types of environments, point of care against radiology. We've got a, a lot of expertise and experience um, around this, uh, this kind of topic and the, the challenges that you might face in those kinds of environments. So we wanted to do a, a, a chat uh, around, uh, around that. And it's just really our experiences, essentially, a bit of a narrative around that um, next week. So that's going to be next week's topic. Uh, send in your, your questions and things in advance by all means uh, very very keen to get questions and interaction it really gives us the opportunity to bit, put a bit more flavor around some of these discussions as well uh, this week we'll be um, back uh, up on YouTube uh, when I get myself sorted out and get it on there uh, it'll also be on uh, Spotify and iTunes and things if you want to listen to it uh, on your uh, your more than one walk a day now in the UK um, so or in England sorry um, so um, yeah feel free to, uh, to to watch it back send us any feedback you've got and um, we look forward to seeing you all next week thanks very much for your support uh, again cheers thank you cheers, cheers. thanks guys thanks. bye bye, bye, -bye.